What is a religious cult? Why are so many people, including people from mainstream churches, joining spiritually destructive cults? Today, we have answers. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zucker. Today, we'll hear from a man who many consider to be the greatest living defender of the Christian faith, Dr. Norman Geisler. Pat recently invited Dr. Geisler to speak to a conference in Hawaii on the essentials of the Christian faith and how cults deviate from them. Today, you'll hear part two, and it's resources like this that we offer at Evidence and Answers. Go to evidenceandanswers.org, and there you'll find resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, articles that Pat has written, and his books, including his newest book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now let's go before an audience with Dr. Norman Geisler on the essentials of the Christian faith and how cults deviate from them. Defining a cult has been difficult, but I think we can do it as simply as possible. Denying an essential doctrine of the faith is the characteristic of a cult. Now you can't know what is a cult unless you know what the essential doctrines are. And here are the essentials of the Christian faith. These are all the doctrines that make Christianity true and that make Christianity livable and viable. We believe that human beings are depraved, they are sinful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Mary had no biological father of the child, that Jesus was miraculously conceived in her womb, and that he was born of the Virgin Mary. And hence he is sinless. Jesus had no sin, he knew no sin, he was a spotless lamb of God, uh, he lived a pure and impeccable life. And besides that, Jesus was God, not just a God, not just divine, but he was God Almighty in human flesh, both human and divine. That he had 100% human nature and he had 100% divine nature. And that there is only one God, not two gods, not three gods, not a multiplicity of gods, but only one God. And in this God, there is a triunity, like a triangle, one triangle with three corners, like one to the third power. One times one times one is one. That there's a triunity inside of God. And that this God, because we are sinful, has unmerited favor toward us, called grace. And that this unmerited favor has provided salvation on our behalf. And that essential to getting this salvation is faith. It's absolutely essential. We are justified by faith and by faith alone. Based on the atoning death of Christ, that Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins, he rose from the dead, to prove he was the Son of God. So in his bodily resurrection, and he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us, his priestly intercession. And that someday he's going to come back to earth, set up his kingdom, he's going to reign in this world, Christ's second coming. Now where do we get all these doctrines? We get them from a Bible that we believe from Genesis to Revelation is the infallible word of God. There are 16 fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Any group that claims to be Christian and denies one or more of these is by definition a cult. These are the essential doctrines. Mormon deception. You ask Mormons, do you believe in the Trinity? And they'll say yes. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe there's one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God. They believe in what's called tritheism, three different gods, three separate beings. Not one God for this planet. Uh, if you ask them if they believe in one God, yes. But that means one God for this planet. Actually, there are many gods, a God for each of the planets. If you ask them if there's salvation by grace, they'll say yes, but they mean salvation from the dead 
by resurrection, not salvation from sin. So they take our terms and use them to deceive people into believing that they believe what we believe when they don't believe what we believe at all. Jesus is the Son of God. They say, yes, he's the Son of God, but they also believe he's the brother of Lucifer. You say, no, not my, my fine Mormon neighbors wouldn't believe something like that. Ask them sometime. They believe that Jesus Christ is the brother of Lucifer. I tried to get one of them on the radio program one day to admit it. It took me about five minutes to get him to uh, even acknowledge it. He didn't want to acknowledge it, but it's true. Moral deception, using terms that we use, like Jesus is the Son of God, to mean that he's a brother of Lucifer is moral deception. And using terms like the Trinity when you believe in three gods or one God when you believe in one God for each of the planets is also uh, deception. Here are the 16 doctrines that I just named that all evangelical Christians believe. And here are uh, Christian science, Scientology in the first column, Christian science in the second column, liberal Christianity, most of the mainline denominations, the Mormons, the LDS, and Jehovah's Witnesses. Now the X's there indicate the ones that they deny. So look at uh, Scientology. Scientology, which if you call them a cult, they will sue you. They're one of the most litigious groups in the world. Deny all 16, every one of the 16 doctrines. Look at Christian science. They deny all 16 of the doctrines, every one of them, and yet they call themselves Christian. Liberalism denies 14, all except Christ is human and there is one God. They deny 14 of the doctrines. The LDS, count them. One, two, three, four, five. They believe five of the 16. That means they deny 11 of the 16 doctrines. I was asked by Newsweek magazine some time ago, they were doing an article on Mormonism, and I was called as an evangelical to give my comments on Mormonism. And they said, well, uh, is Mormonism a Christian? And I said, if you deny 11 of the 16 Christian doctrines, the fundamentals, not the trivials or the non-essentials, not the mode of baptism or the name on the church or the former church government, if you deny 11 of the fundamental doctrines, how can you be called a Christian? When you deny all of those teachings, the Jehovah's Witnesses in the last column as well, they're only two better. They have seven of them that they agree with and the rest that they deny. A cult denies one or more. And if you deny all of them, or almost all of them, then you surely are a cult. Morally, philosophically, how can we explain the rise of cults philosophically? Well, philosophically, the swing of the pendulum usually goes from one end to the other. For example, we live in a materialistic society. Now, how did the New Age movement get going? The New Age movement got going because secular humanism created a spiritual vacuum and New Age religions came to fill it. All of nature rushes to fill a vacuum. We move from all is matter, which is materialism, to all is mind, which is pantheism. We move from the Epicureans on Mars Hill to the Stoics. Remember, Paul was a theist. He was a theist who said God created all. And the Epicureans said there is no God at all. And the Stoics said God is all. There are three basic views in the world. Either God made all, God is all, or there is no God at all. And we move from secularism, there is no God at all, to God is all. We move from Carl Sagan looking out into the cosmos saying there are billions and billions of them, to Shirley MacLaine waving at the ocean saying, I am God, I am God, I am God. All is matter to all is mind. We move from studying outer space to studying inner space. 
We moved from no God at all to God is all. When did that move take place in our society? Roughly speaking, between 1961 and 1981, we moved from a, from a Christian theistic society to a society where people believed in secular humanism. Secular humanism took over America 1961 to 1981. In the Supreme Court in 1961, they said secular humanism is a religion protected by the Constitution. 62 and 63, no prayer, no Bible in the public schools. 1980, no Ten Commandments on the bulletin board. And 1987, you can't teach creation in the school. And during that roughly 30-year period from 1961 to 1987, rounded off to 1990, we became a secular society. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the New Age movement was shaping itself to fill a vacuum that was created by secular humanism. And the young people who were then called hippies, counterculture people, what were they reading? Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Carlos Castaneda, Tales of Power, Don Juan. The Star Wars series was coming. It was saying, oh, God is nature. Nature is God. God is all. So the move of the pendulum from one extreme to the other. A desire for novelty. What is it that philosophers like to do? According to Acts 17, they like to study what is the latest thing? What is the latest view? What is the latest religion? The desire for novelty. The desire to know and to follow what is the latest thing. If it's not new, it's not true. If it's old, it's mold. Well, I've got news for you. If it's old, it's gold. Because if it's old, it stood the test of time. If it's new, you don't know what it's going to be. I don't believe new is true. In fact, that's called in logic the fallacy of chronological snobbery, that you can determine truth by time. You can't determine truth by uh, time. You determine truth by the facts. The rise of relativism and pluralism. They say, how can you have relativism and pluralism? Because everyone has his own truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. The rise of relativism and pluralism. The lack of Christian philosophy. Only good ideas can defeat bad ideas. And one of the reasons we are so vulnerable to these philosophical shifts in our society is Christians were anti-philosophical. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. But you can't beware of philosophy unless you be aware of philosophy. And so Christians put their philosophical head in the sand and let the world go by. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Spiritually, the rise of the cults can be explained because of the decline of vibrant Christianity. The absence of light brings darkness. Do you know when you turn off the light, you don't have to say to the darkness, uh, oh, darkness, come on, I turned the light off. It's just there. When you turn off the light, the darkness is just there. It's true physically and it's true spiritually. When you say that you cannot read the Bible in the schools anymore, you can't pray in schools anymore, you can't even say the Declaration of Independence is true, that there's a creator, creation, and God given moral absolutes, what do you expect is going to happen in our culture? You turn off the light and the darkness is there. The resurgence of spiritual forces. Someone put it this way, when God dies, the gods are born. And the reason we have such a plethora of gods such a multiplicity of cults, 3,000 to 5,000 different cults in our country is because when God dies, the gods arise all over. Everyone has one. In India, where God has been dead for centuries and centuries, they have 330 million gods. No wonder. 
the failure of Christians to use the armor of God to fight the forces of evil. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us why we're vulnerable to spiritual forces. It's not that you're walking down a road and you suddenly get zapped by a demon. No, it's because you take off the armor of God. What is it? The helmet of salvation. You've got to get saved first to get protection to your head, crucial part of your body. And then you have the breastplate of righteousness. You've got to live a righteous life. You live a sinful life, you're going to be prone to deception. The belt of truth. What holds the whole thing together? The belt. Thy word is truth. The shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. To the degree that you don't have that armor on, you're going to be vulnerable to spiritual attacks. Failure of Christians to use the armor of God to fight the forces of evil. What should the response of the church be? Well, doctrinally, let's start teaching the whole counsel of God. Let's start teaching the Bible. Let's start in Genesis and teach from Genesis to maps in the back, you know. Let, let's teach the whole thing. We cannot recognize error unless you know the truth. Only experts in the genuine can recognize counterfeit. Teach in two-column contrast. What do I mean? Well, our culture wants to blur all distinctions, especially the New Age and pantheism. And so we've got to teach in two-column contrast. We've got to teach that this is contrary to that. I remember a number of uh, years ago I was teaching on this in the church, and I put this chart in fact, it was a lot longer chart. I said, you know, there's a difference between the Christian God and the New Age God. The Christian God is beyond the world, and the New Age God is identical to the world. The Christian God is personal, and the New Age God is impersonal. The Christian God's a he, the New Age God is an it. The Christian God is only good, and the New Age God has a good side and an evil side. The Christian God is pure light, and the God of Star Wars has a light side and a dark side. One is called theism, one is called pantheism. There is a vast difference we got to put it in two-column charts. They teach this, the Bible teaches that, and never the twain uh, shall meet. He can't be both at the same time. Ecclesiastically, we've got to provide challenge and commitment to a worthwhile cause. We never challenged our young people. You know, one of the finest Christian camps in the world is in uh, Colorado, in uh, Manitou Springs, outside of Colorado Springs. And they have two weeks. You know what they do with the two weeks? They don't entertain the kids. They challenge the kids. They teach them doctrine and apologetics. And they're in classes eight to ten hours. And they have exams and they have verses to memorize. And they love it. And they have a waiting list of kids to get in. We have tried to entertain our young people rather than edify them. We have uh, tried to make them feel better rather than be better. We need more challenge and commitment to our young people. If more worship Father God, less people would be worshiping Mother Earth. If we valued human life more, less people would value baby seals over baby humans. I have nothing against baby seals, but I have something against the hypocrisy of spending thousands, even millions of dollars to get trapped seals and whales out of the ice while we're killing 4,000 human babies every day by abortion in America. That is utter hypocrisy. Yes, we should be stewards of the earth and stewards of animals and plant life, and yes, we should tend to God's garden, but to pretend that there is no problem with the human life that we are wasting while we're killing thousands of babies, some 4,000 every day, uh, and concentrate on saving uh, animals while we're killing humans is a disgrace to God Almighty. Socially, what can we do? 
If they don't find love at home, they will seek it away from home. It's not simply enough to teach our children the truth. We have to love them. We have to speak the truth in love. To make truth more palatable, it ought to be spoken in love. To make truth more palatable, it ought to be shared in a context of love. Truth is not subjectivity. Truth is objective and absolute. And the Bible makes it very clear that you can speak the truth in an unloving way and turn people off with it. You can speak error in a loving way and draw people to it. Both are necessary. If they don't find love at home, they're going to seek it away from home. If their true parents do not accept them, they will seek false parents who will accept them. They'll get their acceptance in the cult. And a lot of Christian young people, when they get into difficulties, will come home, say to their parents, and they'll receive rejection from their parents. We must love them and love them unconditionally. What can we do morally? Avoid absolutizing the relative lest they should be turned away by it. I was reared in a church that took every extra biblical thing and made it an absolute command. They had, uh, I don't uh, smoke, drink, or chew, or associate with do list, and it was right down to bubble gum and reading comic books. It had every imaginable thing in the list of don'ts. Avoid absolutizing the relative, because you know what? They know it's not an absolute, and they will throw out the baby with the bathwater. They'll throw out the absolutes with the relatives. Avoid absolutizing relatives lest they be turned off by it. On the other hand, avoid relativizing the absolutes lest they seek an absolute somewhere else. Now, the fundamental churches are guilty of number one, and the liberal churches are guilty of number two. The fundamental churches tend to absolutize the relative, and the liberal churches tend to uh, relativize all the absolutes. Either one will set up someone for the deception of the cults. Philosophically, what can we do to respond to the cults? First of all, no one goes to a doctor who does not study sickness. If you go to a doctor and say, I've got a pain in my epistat near my zorch, or wherever you get pains, and the doctor says to you, what would you like to know about health? I don't emphasize the negative. I don't want to talk about pain or sickness. I want to talk about health. What would you do? Find yourself a new doctor, right? If he doesn't study sickness, how is he going to know how to treat it? We must know truth to recognize error, but we must know disease in order to know how to treat it. People often ask me, why do you always study these false religions and all these cults and false religions? Just study the truth. Well, there's a half-truth to that. You have to know the truth to recognize error, but aren't you glad that there's somebody studying diseases so when you catch one, they can tell you how it can be cured and how you can avoid it and not get it? Those who don't study true philosophy will be swallowed up by false philosophy. Paul said, beware of philosophy. But we can't beware of bad philosophy unless we be aware of good philosophy. This is why I've dedicated my life. This is why I got a PhD in philosophy. Somebody told me it meant phenomenally dumb. I thought I could qualify for that. Why did I do it? Why have I for 50 years challenged young people to study philosophy and have trained a whole generation of Christian young people who are into philosophy and who believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. In fact, we started the Evangelical Philosophical Society a number of years ago, and now more recently the uh, International Society of Christian Apologetics, because we need to show people how, by good philosophy, to answer bad philosophy. We need to show the self-defeating nature of false views. For example, did you ever talk to a New Ager, a pantheist, who said, well, you can't trust your senses. Well, of course, your senses say you're going to die, you're going to have pain, but that's not real. If you can't trust your senses, then why is it that they read to you out of science and health with key to the scripture and expect you 
to hear what they're saying. You're trusting your sense of hearing. Why is it they show you a book and tell you to read it when you have to trust your sense of sight to see what's on the page? You couldn't even read their books that tell you not to trust your senses without trusting your senses. You couldn't listen to one of their lectures that tells you not to trust your senses unless you were trusting your senses. Self-defeating. You can't trust your senses. Or you can't talk about ultimate reality. You go to a Zen Buddhist and, he'll, and you say to the Zen Buddhist master, what is the Tao? What is the Tao? He'll say, you can't talk about the Tao. And yet he writes a 500-page book about the Tao, talking about the Tao. If he can't talk about the Tao, why does he talk about it? If he can't write about the Tao, why does he write about it? The statement, you can't talk about ultimate reality, is a statement about ultimate reality. Or here's one. I came to realize that I'm God. The problem with the world? Amnesia, said Shirley MacLaine. We all forgot we're God. Now, if I can awaken your true belief and teach you that you're God and God consciousness, and I realize that I'm God and you realize you're God and God is not fighting God, then I'll stop fighting you, you'll stop fighting me, there'll be peace in the world. That's the New Age solution to uh, the problem of division and peace in the world. What's the problem? Well, the problem was a T-shirt I had a number of years ago. I could have sold a hundred of them that summer. I was at a Christian rock uh, concert called Cornerstone in the fields of uh, Illinois, and I could have sold a hundred of these T-shirts. On the front it said, even in this new age, two things are crystal clear. And on the back it says, there is a God and you're not him. Now, what's wrong with the statement, I once didn't know I was God, but then I took a lesson in yoga, transcendental meditation, Shirley MacLaine or whoever, Shirley MacLaine or Oprah Winfrey, it doesn't matter where, I took a lesson and guess what? I discovered I was God. I came to realize I'm God. You know what's wrong with that? God always knew he was. And if you didn't always know you were, then you're not God. If you wake up some morning and you say, by Jove, I'm God, you're not. <laughs> you're not, because he always knew that he was. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Why study air? To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemy on their ground, would be to throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. This is why Christians need to be informed and need to study these things. Spiritually, what can we do? Recognize that Satan is a defeated foe. Ephesians 4, Colossians 2, Hebrews 2. He's a declawed and defanged enemy. He can roar, he can bark, but he can't bite. He lost his bite when Christ died on the cross and defeated him. Take on the whole armor of God. Stop trying to exorcise evil spirits and start exorcising the Holy Spirit. Start being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit rather than controlled by alcohol, by drugs. Stop trying to exorcise evil spirits and start exercising the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Stop trying to speak a word of faith and start putting faith in the word. Stop trying to command God by faith. He's not a cosmic errand boy. This is not Aladdin's lamp that you can rub the, the lamp and the genie appears. Prayer is not a means by which you get your will done in heaven. It's a means by which God gets his will done on earth. And once we learn the true power of prayer, then we will have spiritual victory. In brief, 
know the word, love the brethren, and evangelize the world. It's the best counter to the cults that you and I can do. Know the word, love the brethren, and evangelize the world. And young people who are reared in a context like that, that is rooted in the word of God, the love of the brethren, and the challenge to reach the world for Christ and catch the vision, generally aren't caught by the cults. Let me just close with, the, uh, with this word of challenge for you. If you know somebody who's in the cults, you've got three weapons. You've got prayer as a weapon, you have love, and you have truth. Share the truth of the word with them in love. Pray for them fervently that God will enlighten and deliver them. And there is every chance in the world that you can win them from that cult. If you want to prevent people from getting into it, ground people in the word, teach them doctrine, teach them apologetics, teach them to defend their faith, give them a challenge to transform the world, stop entertaining young people and start informing and challenging them and we can prevent much of the inroads that cults have in our culture. Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers. And I want to remind you that Dr. Geisler and Pat Zuckerman have written a book together called The Apologetics of Jesus. You'll find it at evidenceandanswers.org. By the way, if you want to keep a quality apologetics program on the air and on the web, please support Evidence and Answers with your prayers and financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing the many resources we have online including Pat's new book with Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. So check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you can also invite Pat to speak at your next event, church, campus, or conference on the most crucial issues facing the world today and how the Christian worldview provides the best answers to the best questions. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Be sure and join us again for Evidence and